and welcome to the Succession Fit Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce our first ever guest, Maria King. Maria is an experienced practice management leader, consultant, and coach serving clients nationwide. Driven by her desire to meet clients on their terms, she takes pride in providing the most powerful, customized consulting experiences possible. As the founder of Transcend Practice Management, her goal is to bring creative consulting to a broad range of independent advisors and keep the focus of consulting where it belongs, on the client. In addition to her work in the practice management arena, Maria was recognized by Commonwealth Financial Network for her extraordinary commitment to building community for women advisors. She's been featured on radio in numerous trade publications and online guest series. Maria is going to talk to us about growth opportunities and the importance of succession and continuity plans. So welcome, Maria. Thank you, Tom. It's a privilege to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. So we have so many great topics. We'll get right into them. Um, okay. And I'll start right. Why do advisors, you feel, ignore or delay the process of completing a succession or continuity plan? It's a great question. And I think when we look at industry publications, what we read about is how ego and control tend to be the two things that get in the way of advisors sort of letting go and starting to think about a time when they are not going to be in, in leadership of their businesses. And, and I think ego and control do come into play, but I think they're symptomatic of a deeper issue, which is fear. I think advisors, you know, well, advisors are people, right? Just like us. And the thought of contemplating their own death or disability or the end of their career is, is quite daunting. And so there is a fear that comes into play that leads to avoidance or indecision. Um, and I think it's, it's rational to think about it because, you know, when advisors going to sell or transition their practice, they only get to do it once. And it's mm -hmm. a complicated process. It's a time consuming process. And to anticipate having to know all the options that are available to them and to get it right the one and only time that they're going to do it, it's intimidating and it's daunting. And, and so I think that, that all, those, all those issues get stirred up by that, by that fear. And you know, there are some other subsequent things that come into play and in that they, they have a psychological fear of um, what their identity will be once they've left the business that they have self-identified with for so mm -hmm. long. Um, there might be a social fear because it's a very social business. You get a lot of juice from interacting with other people. And, and what are you going to, how are you going to replace that if you're no longer in the business itself? Uh, there's certainly an emotional uh, fear there um, about just, you know, what are they going to do? What is their raison d'etre uh, once they have let go of things? And for some advisors, there's a financial fear. You know, it's been a very lucrative business for them. And will they be able to maintain their lifestyle? Hopefully, they have been doing uh, what they have encouraged clients to do. And they're in a good place to do that. But I think all of those things get stirred up quite a bit. And that is what causes advisors to delay or not follow through on succession and continuity planning. Wow. And I, I loved your answer because in my career of having done this now for 15 years helping advisors um, look at this process, I can tell you, I've had people go right up to closing time and be in yeah. my conference room in Connecticut and literally sit there and say, I can't do this. Not because they didn't like the terms and not because they weren't ready themselves, 
one client or one advisor told me a few years ago, I'm embarrassed because my clients will see a level of service that I should have been giving them. I said, well, that's the whole point of the transition. You get to brag that you picked the right team. But instead, right. he he literally shut down and said, I can't do this. So I've had that happen. I've had advisors literally, I call it die with their boots on, where every few months I call them. And one time I called to an advisor downstate toward New York City, and his wife picked up the phone. I had never met her. And she said, I'm sorry, he passed away last month. I was like, oh, oh my gosh, you know, I'm so sorry. So I've seen the whole wide range as well. And we often try to ascribe, you know, what could I have done different to help these people? So thank yeah. you for sharing. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you have witnessed or heard about in this area? Because I have my own, I shared a few of them, but what are some of the ones that you see uh, that happen? Well, there are three big ones that I see repeatedly. And the first one is underestimating just how long it takes to plan for succession or transition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think advisors will think, well, I might retire in 10 years. So eight years from now, I'll deal with that. Um, and that's too late. Um, the reality is that if you want your transition to go smoothly, if you want the clients to move over to that new ownership smoothly, you want them to attach to them and have a good experience with it, you need to give it a fair amount of time. And so if that transition is even happening internally, I would say you need at least five years to make an internal succession go very, very well, because you not only have to prepare that internal successor to be an outstanding advisor, you also have to prepare them to be a business owner, which is a completely different set of skills. You have mm -hmm. to prepare them to be a business developer, which they may or may not have a natural ability for. You have to prepare your team for the change in the relationship that they're going to have with that individual. You have to prepare your clients for attaching to someone that has probably been a very highly valued member of a team, but now you know they're being asked to think of that person as the lead, and that that's a shift that they, they need time to, to prepare for. So even when you have somebody in place, um, you, know, you need to be thinking about the time and the communication plans that need to go into making that transition work. And so about five years is what I normally recommend for an internal um, succession. If folks are going to merge or go outside of their firm to a third party, I'd say you need at least three years to make that happen. That is just as nuanced as an internal transition as well. You need to look at the cultural fit and how you're going to blend these teams together, how you're going to blend the client base together. You'll probably be encountering a firm that has a different service model, a different set of operational procedures, a different technology adaption, um, adoption rate. And so you need, you need several years to make these deals work. So giving it enough time is certainly one thing. The second big mistake I would say, especially on the sell side, is anchoring on price. I've seen sellers just get a number in their head and they're just not gonna let go of that number, right? And, um, and a lot of times they, you know, they, they haven't done an actual formal valuation uh, that, that would tell them that that is a reasonable price for them, them to expect. They're usually looking at industry multiples, usually the higher end of those multiples, and they're using that to value their, their practice, which I think is a mistake as well, but I'll get to that. Um, and I think sometimes sellers overestimate the stickiness of their, of their clients, especially on an external sale. Um, and so that, that all rolls into just a, a general overestimating what the value of the book is. 
and anchoring on price. And then the third big mistake I'd say is not getting objective assistance. So I mentioned a moment ago about how advisors tend to anchor on price by using multiples. And they really should be going to an outside party, getting a discounted cash flow mm -hmm. estimate of what their, their, their practice is worth or a range of value for that practice. I don't understand why you know, math that you can do in your head is what you would use to value something you've spent decades building. Um, but that, that is what they do. So I think they need a valuation expert. The other thing that, that surprises me is how infrequently advisors will uh, confer with a CPA to get a deep understanding of the tax implications of their deals. I've had so many advisors call me back and in shock about what, what the tax burden is once the deal is already done. And they've been reminded over and over again they need to get that outside expertise, but they, they fail to do it. And similarly, they often don't, don't get legal assistance as well. They don't get an attorney involved early enough to help them understand the implications on the, on the legal side. And then finally, you know, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier about what gets in the way of these deals happening, I think it's really helpful when advisors get an outside party, whether it's a consultant or somebody else who has expertise in the process, who can take some of the emotionality out of the deal, out of the, the, the um, conversations, and keep the train on the tracks for them. You know, can help uh, both, both parties come to the table, have a deep conversation, uh, understand what the steps are, keep them on track to complete those steps um, along the way. Um, I think that's a huge value for them, but but so many of them don't engage with that. So those would be the three big mistakes: understanding, underestimating, excuse me, the time that it takes, anchoring on price, and then not getting enough outside expertise involved in the transaction. Great. Yeah, those seem very, very common. I've experienced them as well. It reminds me, you know, since we're in such a hot real estate market, um, I'm sure we've all had friends and even relatives will say, um, as an example, you know. I'm not taking a nickel under 500,000 for my house because the neighbors just sold theirs and their lawn isn't as good as my lawn. And right. I know I've been in their basement, you know, and I've been in their family room and mine's much, you know, and all of a sudden in their mind, they go 500,000 is my price no matter what. And a real estate agent might say, well, let's look at, you know, comparables and let's look at, they have one more bedroom than you do. And by right. the way, they redid their kitchen a couple of years ago. Right. So right. Right. you and I can understand that. So, that's great. So let's shift about, we're often hearing that acquisitions are frequently talked about as growth opportunities for buyers. And I know I'm, I'm a buyer, but they're also talked about, and you've mentioned this in the past, that they're also growth opportunities for sellers. Can you explain that? Because that seems counterintuitive. Yeah, sure. Um, and it does seem counterintuitive. But, I, you know, beginning a few years ago, um, the option to sell and stay or merge and stay um, started to really pick up steam and started to gain in popularity um, in, in earnest. And both of those are ways for sellers to enrich their practice before they actually leave the business. You know, historically, sellers have been um, reluctant to become employees of other advisors firms. So the idea of selling into an advisory firm and then staying there in, in an employee role and continuing to work the client base, um, continuing to grow the book, book of business as well, wasn't something that advisors wanted to do. Um, even the option of merging and maybe not becoming an employee, but merging in with that, that firm and continuing to grow that book of business, leveraging the infrastructure that is in place by that larger firm 
firm, um, leveraging probably the branding and the marketing efforts of that, that firm as well. Um, again, it was something that sellers were, tended to be reluctant to do because they felt they were giving up too much autonomy in order to do that. But I think starting maybe three or four years ago, there, there seemed to be a shift and sellers started to see that there is tremendous value in actually being willing to give up some of that control, some of that leadership, um, and move in with another firm, whether the merger route or the sale route. And in the time that they stay with that firm, whether it's two years, three years, five years, continue to grow that book of business, increasing the value of the business that they're bringing to the table and ultimately increasing the uh, payout that they get at the end um, by that acquiring firm. So it can be a tremendous growth opportunity for advisors from a financial sense, but it can also be a growth opportunity from um, a structural sense in that if they are able to leverage the infrastructure, the operations, the technology, the skill set of the staff that's on board with that acquiring firm, that frees them up to do a lot more business development work, which is a lot, oftentimes the work that they do best and the work that they enjoy most. Um, so they're continuing to bring value to that larger organization, even though they have either sold or merged into it. So um, I think that it's a tremendous opportunity for growth. And I think sellers are starting to see it that way more because those are the types of uh, succession uh, transactions that, that, that we're seeing struck more and more often. Okay, great. And for those, if we took a step back, let's say for those advisors that are still thinking about, you know, the planning, like, what do I do? What's the next step? I also come across this, and I think you may have as well. Why is it they tend to spend time worrying about the longer term, what we would call succession plan, the five or 10 year plan, yeah. and they tend to ignore what I call the continuity or break class in case of emergency plan, which is you yeah. unexpectedly died. And some yeah. of it may be obvious, but I wanted you to share your thoughts on that too, because I often hear advisors confuse succession and continuity. And you and I know those are two different things. Yeah. Yeah. They are two different things, very different animals, but they do get conflated um, quite a bit of the time. You know, when um, I was thinking about this and there was an uh, financial Planning Association study back in 2018 uh, that surveyed advisors about the status of their continuity planning. And at that time, granted, it's about three years ago now, but 27% of advisors had a written continuity plan on file. 27. So that 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 tells you something. Um, and it's striking because continuity planning for an advisory firm is the equivalent of uh, estate planning for your client. And advisors are so meticulous about encouraging their clients to put an estate plan in place. And yet the same thing that they should be doing for their own business, this continuity plan, is just doesn't get done. And I think it comes back to that notion of fear, right? That they, you know, advisors have built this business for quite a long time. They've invested their identity in it. They've invested their careers in it. They've invested so much emotion in it. Um, and the thought of letting it go is, is just something that they can't confront. Um, and, you know, I've worked with advisors who have been terminally ill, um, who've called me with stage four illness. Oh. And... I've asked them to work with me to put a continuity plan in place and they, they've refused to engage in it. And a couple of them even said, noting that, that it's irrational, but they said, but once I put that plan in place, that's when my life will end. And it's magical thinking. It, it obviously is not cause and effect, but 
you know, they were stage four, and, and so they, they unfortunately did pass, but the result was that their families were left to sell a business in the midst of some of the most outstanding grief that they've ever experienced. So it, it's a psychological challenge for advisors, and this is where I think they do need some outside help, and some folks might need you know, therapists to help them through that fear to be able to do what's best, not only for themselves, but for their families, for their clients, and for their staffs. Because when those plans go unmade, it's it's incredibly disruptive time and and everybody is at sea and doesn't know what to do or what 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 to expect. And the value that an advisor's built over so many years dissipates very, very quickly. You know, within about two weeks, you know, the top top clients are going to have found somebody else to work, work, work with if you haven't put something in place. So it's really, really important to um, face your fears and put that continuity agreement and plan, uh, plan in place. And then to have a very strong relationship with that continuity partner and revisit the plan with them at least annually to make sure that you're still on track, that you're still aligned and that it still makes sense to do. Um, but but it's a it's a big issue. Uh, and, and I think it boils down to fear. And I think you're right. And I remember when I was doing research for my book, um, you know, the Zen of Business Acquisitions, which mm -hmm. covers many, many advisors that work in this field. I remember Ron Carson telling me in the interview on his first succession plan, which was probably done 20 years ago, he ran it by his top clients. I thought that was brilliant. Mm -hmm. But yes, the feedback brilliant. he got was, Ron, that's a terrible plan. I wouldn't stay with your firm. So he scrapped it and had to uh -huh. rebuild one. So he was smart enough to, and he thankfully he's still alive today, but the point was he was smart enough to ask his top clients, if I'm not here, are you comfortable with this plan? And they said, yeah. no, we're not. So that's another thing. That's brilliant. This, this magical thinking you talk about. I think advisors fear um, if I talk about this and that'll be my early demise. And I do actually remember being a former, I like to say a recovering life insurance agent. Um, <laughs> I remember years ago though, I do remember now that we're, talking about it, you know, sort of stream of consciousness. I remember people saying, I don't want to buy life insurance because that might mean that I'm likely going to die. And I kept thinking, where's the cause and effect there? And there wasn't any. But as you said, there's this magical thinking uh, yeah. that's incorrect. But like you said, once they anchor on that, uh, whether it's price or terms, or in this case, they freeze, you know, they freeze yeah. up and they don't move ahead. So right. let's right. let's segue then in your experience is there a subset of advisors who actually are better at putting continuity plans in place? I'm curious, you know, we've talked about the 27% that do, which is you and I know a shame for an industry that spends its life planning for other people. But yes. is there a subset of people that you have seen that tend to be better at doing this and maybe what skills or qualities you think they bring that allows them to go through? Cause I'll have my own to share after you answer, you know, if you answer your part of the question. Sure, yeah. I do think that there is a subset of advisors, and it's those who tend to have tend to take the long view, just in general, they take the long long view. And the ones that are actively engaged in MA or even if it's not, um, even if they're not sort of serial acquirers, but they're more opportunistic acquirers, but if they have an eye out for acquisition opportunities or merger opportunities, those are the ones that, that tend to be attuned to continuity planning a bit more than the average advisor. 
and what well and the way I the reason that I say that is that they evidence it by baking continuity planning into their merger planning or succession planning. So we'll see that buyers want to know that sellers, particularly when they're merging or selling and staying, that sellers have a continuity plan in place with them or somebody mm -hmm. on their team um, so that the book of business that they that they build after the point of acquisition um, continues to transfer over to that acquiring firm. And so they want to make sure that nothing really slips through the cracks. So they're very mindful about baking co continuity into it in terms of future growth of the book. And then sellers are clearly interested in continuity on the buyer's side, because if the buyer should pass away in the midst of paying for the acquisition, the seller wants to know that there's another entity in place that is experienced and able and capable um, to take on that debt and to take on those clients and to continue the payments to themselves. So the, the folks that are actively engaged in the M&A space and in the um, succession space tend to be the ones who are, are better about con putting co continuity plans in place, um, not only for the counterparties in those deals, but also for themselves. Great. And you know, I've noticed something in our firm. So this is our I think 16th year of doing acquisitions, keeping in mind that we've done only about eight, but interviewed hundreds of firms, you know, over those years. And recently, this is maybe the last three years, our trend, and this is something I couldn't have necessarily predicted a long time ago, we've come across female advisors, at least certainly for our geographical region, and it may be true for the entire country. We found that female advisors are more organized and well-attuned and almost sort of know when they want to have their next phase in life. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that fascinating that they really mm -hmm. have been able to um, come to the table when the timing is right and get through the deal structure and all and say, you know what, I have the next phase of my life with my spouse or some other planned mm -hmm. and I want to move forward. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen with male advisors. I'm just saying statistically in the last few years, my firm has come across that uh, a bit more, which I find yeah. fascinating. But what's interesting is um, it's exhilarating. And in another podcast mm -hmm. coming up, I'm actually going to interview one of the gentlemen that I did the transition with, and he's going to share all of his great stories. Um, it'll be coming up. His name is Mike Hurst. But right. for those um, that are thinking about this process, you know, when you get yeah. down to continuity or succession planning, um, we know that due diligence is a big part of anything, mm -hmm. whether you go to buy a home uh, pick an estate lawyer, buy a car online. Even if you're uh -huh. doing right Carvana these days, you have to do your due diligence. So right. what do you hear advisors say about this process of due diligence, either from the buying side or the selling side? I want to know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So buyers, especially experienced buyers like yourself, Tom, you know, they have a defined process for conducting due diligence. They know what to look for when they're presented with an opportunity. They know what their, what their deal breakers are. Uh, they know what the most attractive factors are that they're lo looking for. They know what their what their price is. Like they know that there is a ceiling to how much they are willing to pay for something. So they have a very disciplined process um, in place. Buyers who are more um, sort of ad hoc, you know, looking at something that, oh, well, it might be nice to buy a practice at some point, tend not to have that kind of 
process in place. And so the due diligence tends to slip through the cracks. Um, they tend to give it a little bit short shrift. Um, and, you know, there was a study in about four years ago from IETA, and they had interviewed advisors who had gone through acquisitions. And they asked them how long they, they spent on due diligence. And the advisors who spent two or more years reported being happier with the acquisition that took place and more likely to acquire in the future. The advisors who took less than two years, I think the average was six months of due diligence, reported tremendous unhappiness with the acquisition and a uh, probably not going to do it again kind of vibe, right? So uh, kind of going back to putting the time in and understanding that there is um, a significant commitment of time that, that is needed in order to conduct your due diligence and know just what it is that you're buying. But due diligence, I think that the top three things that come out one is cultural fit and harmony between the firms. Um, the second is harmony around or alignment around the investment process, which would include your investment strategy, your philosophy, uh, just how you construct portfolios, your risk assessments, all the rest. And the third big um, factor for due diligence is a client experience as seen through the service model. Those are the three biggest factors that come into play. And there was a 2019 study by institutional investor that said that 86% of advisory firms who were in the acquisition space rated cultural fit by and large the top factor in making an acquisition work. So it's really important to put the time in and it's important to pay attention to the culture. It tends to be squishy. You know, folks like, how do you even know what the culture is? It takes a lot of communication, a lot of conversation. These aren't things that you're necessarily going to be able to, ex you know, trade Excel spreadsheets on and have people sort of noodle on on their own, right? You have to experience it. You want your team to experience the other team. You really need to sort of get in there and live with each other for a while before you can know whether the culture is a fit. And I'm, I, I remember there was a Two, two advisors who were working together and it seemed to be going really, really well. And we started talking about culture. And I said, well, what does it mean for each of you to be at work? Like, what does that mean? And one of them had a very strong feeling that being at work meant be at your desk, in the office, five days a week, doing your thing, right? The other advisor said being at work meant being available to their clients during the working week. She might be grocery shopping or she might be sitting on her back deck or working at home or whatever, but she didn't place value or as much value on being in the office as the other advisor did. And the more that they talked about it and they started to sort of get around that nuance, uh, they, it, it fell apart. Like they, they didn't think that they could work together. So it's that kind of detail you need to get into to really know whether you're, you're talking to the right partner and whether there's a chance that this is going to really work um, and get into that level of, of, of nuance. That's great. Yeah. And I have a couple stories about culture. Uh, one of them, the famous quote, just like if you ask somebody in real estate, they'll say that, you know, tell you the most important thing is location, location, yeah. location. And I've often said, and I've heard it from others that in the wealth management acquisition space, it's culture, 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 right? So we know yeah. that's a biggie. And one story I heard from an advisor one time, picture two firms in the Midwest. It's a true story, but obviously I'll keep some of the information confidential. But two firms in the Midwest, probably less than a half an hour from each other in terms of travel time. 
And you would think, you know, all born and bred in the Midwest, same family values. They grew up watching the same sports teams, both college and professional. You'd think there's a lot of alignment. And it turns out one firm was run by younger people wanting more affluent clients, sort of a white glove service approach, fee-based asset management, discretionary trading authority. The other firm was more traditional transactional run by an older gentleman, more of a blue collar clientele and who didn't necessarily want the high touch. And so in the end, even though the transaction went through, it was, ex it w I was not involved. I have a friend that kind of coached them. It was extremely difficult to make this thing go because it literally was oil and water. You know, you yeah. can't, you can't sometimes if somebody doesn't want a white glove service and the clients don't want to pay for it, that's fine. They're just not a good fit for you. And conversely, if you think the white glove service is the way to go, then don't go dragging along transactional clients who don't want that. And that's a, right. a perfect example of that. So yeah. in this, in the last couple of minutes we have left, sure. um, and I know we'll have more to talk about in the future. I'm so excited, but <laughs> give me a sense. This is your chance. Cause I know you do great work to plug your firm. Tell us a little bit more about what you do, how people can reach you. And more importantly, as we connect up in future podcasts, we're going to watch some trends here and I'm going to predict as this COVID, this Delta variant takes hold, more and more advisors will either at least think strongly about a succession continuity plan, or if this lasts another year, they may actually pull the trigger and realize, I don't want to deal in this new environment. Even though people like you and I are thriving, there are a lot of people that aren't really happy in this new right. environment. But go right ahead and tell us a little bit about your firm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so it's Transcend Practice Management, and um, I work with independent financial advisors and provide business coaching and consulting to them. So a lot of the work that I'm doing right now with folks, it, it splits about half and half, half coaching and half consulting. Um, they're on the coaching side, it's uh, helping some of, of my clients come to uh, terms with some of those readiness factors we talked about earlier when it comes to succession, that they have, some of them have a three-year horizon, others have a seven-year horizon, but it's getting around to what is the next phase going to be? Who am I going to be in that phase? What is it going to be like for me? So I, I do a fair amount of that, that work, as well as just accountability co coaching for folks who have a plan, but they're solo advisor and they sometimes struggle with just staying on task with what they need to be doing. And so I pop in every few weeks and just help them reassess where they're at and help them stay on track. Um, on the consulting side of things, doing a fair amount of work around organizational evolution. Um, and a lot of this has to do with succession. So advisors looking ahead 10 years, 15 years to say, well, I'm going to be out of the business then. How do I need to start moving my business forward so that I can successfully transition out a decade or more from now? Um, and so working with, with, with firms to think about what that structure is. And that that's fun stuff for me because it goes back to looking at vision and mission and, and what, what is it that really pulls at the heartstrings of that advisor about why they got into the business in the first place and what they love about their about their, their firm. So helping them with all phases of that. So it has to do not only with the vision and the mission and figuring out the org structure go, going forward, but the roles and responsibilities that are in place as well, communication plans, compensation strategies, 
growth strategies along the way. Um, so I offer a pretty, I think, robust and varied um, suite of services for folks. Um, I'm happy to facilitate meetings for them if because sometimes if you're the leader of the organization and you're trying to lead a meeting, it can be tough to get candid feedback from the people that, that you're meeting with, whether that's staff or a focus group. Um, so I offer um, meet, meeting facilitation as, as well. Um, and I am going to be doing a lot more work with women advisors and, and building a network of, of women advisors, a community of advisors. Um, I have a mentoring program that I can offer to women advisors who are interested in that in that space as well. So um, it's an exciting business to get launched, and I was thrilled to be connecting with you and to have the opportunity to talk to you here on Succession Fit. And I look forward to the chance to uh, continue the conversation in the future. Great, thanks so much. And I'm going to kind of summarize as best I can all the great ideas that you you have shared with us. And then just to double check too. So your website is www.transcend-pm. Dot com as in transcend practice management is that correct yes that's right yes Perfect. thank you so what i'll share with you, yeah i think there's a lot of confusion out there among advisors there's a lot of mm -hmm. fear no question about it. you mentioned people's fear of if I, if I put a plan together i might actually die or i don't have a purpose anymore on this mm -hmm. earth uh there's definitely confusion we talked about you've got to have in my opinion a really good tax contact and a really good attorney that knows how yeah. to deal with this because there's a bevy of information that comes down all at once that, like you said, if these advisors only do this once in their lifetime, it's an awful lot to digest in a short period of time. We talked yes. about, you know, the longer term people seem to have the better success rate, you know, five years or longer is ideal. Mm -hmm. And even in the study you cited two years or longer was a good metric for success. If you did the due diligence, you know, for that right. much time period. And then more importantly too, uh, along the way, making sure that as you finalize the plan, I would say the big announcement to both your team and your, you know, your employees and your clients. And I'm surprised sometimes how many advisors don't want to share it with, you know, with their clients. I'm thinking you should be bragging about that because you've taken a step that we know roughly uh, what 73% or more of advisors never take as you right. made that plan happen. And now you get to tell your clients, I'm not leaving you, you know, hanging in the wind um, if something happens to me. So with that, Maria, thank you so much. Uh, I've learned even from the short time we've had here, even more information. <laughs> and I look forward to sharing more with you over time. And uh, more importantly, have a great rest of the summer. We'll all do our best to contain this uh, Delta variant. I know I've been vaccinated along with my team and we'll wear our masks. And let's hope uh, this thing kind of crests quickly because we all want to get back to this life that we just had recently, you know, without going back into uh, any lockdown again. So thank right. you so much, Maria. Have a great rest of the day. You as well. Thank you, Tom. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.